able to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that top smart. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. Violence, more money into art. We can investigate what policies. If we're going to have some real healing, we've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. And uh, this is Buffalo What's Next. Thank you very much for joining us. We're back with you live uh, this morning here on WBFO, as a matter of fact. And coming up later on, uh, Dave Debo is going to talk with uh, uh, Professor uh, Ibram X. Kendi, uh, the uh, director of the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University. That's coming up later on Buffalo What's Next. Right now, though, we're pleased to have with us uh, Gary Earl Ross, a lot of titles for you, uh, Professor Ross, retired <laughs> professor from the University of Buffalo, uh, teaching artist at Just Buffalo Literary Center, of course, playwright, uh, novelist as well. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, a pleasure. So much to talk about. And I, I want to uh, just get to a couple of things here. In your writing, I heard you, uh, you did a little piece with, uh, I think it was with the Birchfield Penny. And you talked about how you wanted to make Buffalo a character and wanted to bring Buffalo to the world through fiction. Yes. Uh, expand on that just a little bit. Well, I write mystery novels in addition to writing plays, but um, most of my fiction these days is, is uh, in the mystery genre. And um, one of the things you'll know if you read a lot of classic mystery novels is that the city that um, a series takes place in frequently is a character. Um, I mean, you read The Maltese Falcon, San Francisco's almost as much a character as... Um, as Sam Spade. If you um, read the Spencer novels, Boston is very much a character. Um, the uh, uh, V.I. Wachowski novels by Sarah Paretsky, Chicago is very much a character. And, you know, certainly um, if you go back to Mickey Spillane's writing in the 40s and 50s, New York is a character in the Mike Hammer novels. So I wanted to have something like that for Buffalo, where Buffalo would be a character. And I could use locations, real restaurants, parks, and, and other things, and mix in fictitious locations as well. So that, I mean, I, I did have a confrontation in the first book, Nickel City Blues, that took place in the, in the first couple chapters at the Anchor Bar. Didn't result in a shooting or anything. That happened at the Anchor Bar much later. Right. Which, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but... Um, but I wanted Buffalo because I think Buffalo is a wonderful city. It has issues, it has problems, but it's still a wonderful place to live. And I wanted to follow up on that then. So Buffalo as a character, since May 14th, what about Buffalo as a character? Have you seen something different about Buffalo since then? What I have seen, I think, is that um, there is a lot of good nature. Um, despite its... Many problems. The human race, I think, is basically good. We're stubborn as all get out. I mean, I heard someone this morning on the radio saying, it's nice here in Kentucky to see everybody helping everybody out in the, in the flooding. And I'm thinking, if you're caught in a flood, you don't care the color of the hand that reaches out of the boat to help you 
off that roof, right? Mm-hmm. All right, all right. <laughs> Why not consider that every hand that's out there could be a potential helping hand, or at least a hand that offers a gesture of goodwill? Why not presume that before we presume the other stuff? Because, um, you know, it, we shouldn't have a natural disaster forcing us to cooperate. <laughs> so, right. Right. so, but I, I see that in Buffalo. I saw a lot um, at the Tops Market. And I, and I will say that section of, of Jefferson was across the street from the um, um, library, the North Jefferson Library, replaced by the Merriweather, but the original building is still there and used for something else. That's the library where I fell in love with, where I fell in love with books when I was a child. And that was my whole neighborhood. And it just broke my heart that, that something like this would happen there. So, um, so I think it brought out some of the positive um, feeling in Buffalo, but it also brought out an awareness that we have um, let some things go um, in our society and in Buffalo as well that we can't let go. They have to be addressed. It's interesting you talk about the, that neighborhood and your fond feelings for it as well. And that is something that has also come out a lot of the conversations we've had here in the studio since we began the show, just that, that there are these strengths inside that neighborhood that are totally overlooked, it seems, by by just the, the common knowledge of Western New York. Well, let me tell you a little about the neighborhood when I was a kid. Because segregation was the um, written law of the land in the South and the unwritten law of the land in the North, I grew up in a segregated neighborhood. But what happened in my neighborhood was that um, we had everybody. You know, there were welfare recipients in my neighborhood, but there were also doctors and lawyers in my neighborhood and teachers and office workers and plumbers and electricians. And the neighborhood was segregated um, racially, but it was economically integrated. And I think economic integration is something we need to strive for um, nationwide. And I, I can talk about that. But when the racial difficulties of the 60s, the civil rights movement, um, some riots, and Buffalo had a couple comparatively small race riots, but they started to divide my old neighborhood because people who could afford to move to suburban homes now... Mm, they had the law behind them. They couldn't be driven out. Um, the uh, people who decided, who could afford to move, did. And one of the things that happened was that inner city neighborhoods began to have a bigger economic downturn when those who couldn't afford to move couldn't. And um, that was a divider that I think was crippling in the long run because what we have is a circumstance where if you're in a neighborhood, and you see people who are like you in all ways. You don't see other options. If you're in a neighborhood where you see a variety of types of people, and you know, in, ter- in terms of careers, we had people who, I mean, our doctor at one point basically lived around the corner. Um, dentists lived down the street. We, we, when we saw people like that, we had things to aspire to regardless of what we saw in our own homes. And I do believe that that is probably where the country needs to go. Um, 
so that if we have um, a housing development, say, a certain percentage should be low-income housing. You know, um, on the outside, people shouldn't necessarily know. But on the inside, you know, the more elaborate home might have the the uh, stone um, countertop in the kitchen. And the cheaper home may have the Formica countertop in the kitchen. But they're both in the same neighborhood because, <laughs> I mean, and then people get to see, oh, what does he do? What does she do? What does their family do? And you get to learn about all kinds of other people. Um, I think economic integration is the way to go. And the problem with being money-based is that we want to create housing that will produce a large profit. And that needs to be tempered, I think, where we have houses for lower-income people. And, and a lot of lower-income people are not lower-income because they they are slacking off. I mean, one thing the pandemic has taught us is that a lot of these people are working in service industries and are necessary. The people at the grocery store who get paid a minimum wage, I think their minimum wage should, should go up. I think they need more, but they're, they're necessary. Right. And we, uh, I, I think the pandemic exposed that, and we have work to do. We're talking with uh, Gary Earl Ross this morning on Buffalo What's Next. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. We're back live with uh, another program here uh, this morning. Uh, let's talk a little bit about um, language mm-hmm. when it comes to trying to understand race, understand racial situations as they stand today. What are your thoughts there? Language um, is a powerful weapon. And um, before I talk about visual language. Uh, let's talk about words. Uh, for example, the N-word um, used to not be the N-word. It used to be a full-throated proclamation. It could show up in Huckleberry Finn. It could show up um, in the on the lips of the person you're walking past if he decides that he doesn't like you. Um, and that usually he. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's interesting. Shame to say. Um, but it was such a common word. I mean, you know the Agatha Christie novel, and then there were none. Right. The original title in England was Ten Little N-Words. Really? Yes, because there was a rhyme, the American title, Ten Little Indians. One little, two little, three little, same gotcha. same sort of setup in hmm. England, but it wasn't uh, a thing. And it's a wonderful book, a wonderful mystery, but the title was a toss-off, and Then There Were None is a much better title, and that's the one that it usually goes by now because publishers have gotten away from. They never did uh, in America. They wouldn't do Ten Little N-Words, which is why in the American edition <laughs> it was Ten Little Indians. Right. And, um, but, the, uh, but that language was a given without a problem because it was accepted. I mean, the N-Word has such a long history where... Um, you look at sheet music, run, Mr. N-Word, run. You look at toys, um, the jolly N-Word bank. I mean, there, there are toys, um, there are sheet music, newspaper stories, articles, things that just um, created the impression that people of color were inferior. Um, my first novel, which is not a mystery, it's an historical novel, Blackbird Rising, takes place in Buffalo in 1901. When I was and Buffalo had 1,691 or 81 blacks. That I novel was published a long time ago. 
but out of the city population, the black population was fairly small. One of the newspapers um, had uh, covered an an appearance by a Southern professor who was speaking in Buffalo and talked about um, the Negro being a threat to the white worker, um, saying that, how did he put it? Um, you can't compete with someone who will underlive a sewer rat oh. to survive, okay? Meaning, we're talking free labor or close to free labor, or cheap labor, and well, you can't do that. Well, the irony of that is that the language he used um, to inflame white workers against workers of color is the same language that slaveholders used to influence um, poor whites in the time of the Civil War, to fight for the Confederacy because most of them couldn't afford to own slaves. There were exceptions for slave owners, so they, they didn't have to answer the draft the same way non-slave owners did. And I'm thinking the people who, like the shooter of Tops, who said he believed in the, the Great Replacement, replacement Theory. theory. Which is right. one it of almost the, sounds like this professor from 1901. Yes, and, that, and that, that's how old this thinking is. And if you stop and think about it, if the man down the road has a huge plantation with slaves and he doesn't pay them to do his work and you don't have much of anything because people aren't paying you, if you thought about it for a minute, wait a minute, you could do some of the work they did. You could earn some money. But nope, the only thing you had going, well, at least you're a white man. That's the only thing going for you. And that system abused poor whites, not to the same degree it abused blacks, but it did abuse them and turn them against their neighbors. Where, and, I, and I raised the question once um, in a conversation with someone. I said, suppose the South had won the Civil War, and then suddenly coal mining got to be a thing in Kentucky and Virginia and, and so forth. I said, if they had slaves to work in their coal mines, do you think they would pay white miners to do it? Probably not. <laughs> so so the people were, were supporting a system that not only... Um, oppressed people of color, but oppressed poor whites as well, telling them at least they were white, they had something to uh, to cling to. And that's the, the whole notion here. And the idea of replacement theory, um, it's dumb because this kid who came up and shot up Buffalo, um, and I and I have connections to a couple of the victims that, that I won't talk sorry about. One, one had been a former student of mine, mm. and uh, one I think was the brother of someone and my daughter has a friend who had a relative there and it's like wait a minute um if you stop and think about it you're 18 19 years old you're coming up to take out replacers how did people in their 80s replace you i mean it's ridiculous thinking but then ridiculous thinking is where we go with language most recently a group of educators in texas proposed changing the uh the term slavery and slave with involuntary re relocation. Involuntary relocation. Yes. Let's, let's say that because it's not as bad as slavery. And the thing is, and I hear this from Governor DeSantis and, and Governor Abbott of Florida and Texas, respectively, they're concerned about, quote, wokeness. Um, they don't want to have history taught 
that'll make white children feel bad. I reject that notion. I want them to feel bad. I want all kids to feel bad, not to feel guilty because they didn't do it. I want them to feel bad. I want them to feel empathy. And one of the things that's happening with our attempt to, quote, stop wokeness, which is ridiculously stupid, um, is that it creates the idea that there are certain things you can't talk about because of emotional content, and we miss the point. Stories are necessary. Uh, I, I've done a, a few lectures where I talk about the, the thing that separates people from animals is not the opposable thumb. It's not our capacity for talking. It's our capacity for story, because one of the things that happens with story is that we learn to empathize. If we take empathizing out of our equation, well, they, people should know facts and figures. They shouldn't have a political perspective. Well, you can learn empathy without dealing with politics. One of my favorite stories, and and, and of course, <laughs> I'm drawing a blank on the author's name. Um, when I taught in the public schools, I taught a short story called The Soul of Caliban, which is now in the public domain. I think I'm going to make a recording of it. Um, and that story dealt with a, a man who lived in the Northwoods kind of thing. He, uh, he had a dog. The dog was ugly and hideous from fights. And he married a woman, and they had a child. And she was always leery of the dog, leery of the dog around the child and so forth. And once they were both out of the cabin at the same time, um, without realizing the other was gone. And they got back, and they rushed in. The baby was alone. And they get into the first room of the cabin. They see the dog, Caliban, standing there, mangled with blood on his face. And the father, in a rage, takes his gun off the wall, shoots the dog. Then they go into the child's bedroom, and they find the baby behind the door. And by the baby's crib is a dead wolf. Your reaction is exactly the sort of thing we're supposed to have with empathy. I remember a student of mine, and her name was Kim. I won't give her last name. And she was in the eighth grade class. And when we did that story, and sometimes I liked to read aloud. Students had to read assignments, and sometimes I would read to them. She burst into tears. Mm. That's important. And I, and I, I remember her name because um, when my son was in Iraq, I had a piece appear in the news about being the father of a soldier. And she wrote to me. She had a son who was in the Marines and in Iraq at the same time. So I, I remember her from that. But the, um, that moment of empathy, of fellow feeling for another living thing, is one of the reasons we have stories. And when we take empathy out of the mix... I mean, and I don't want to get political, but there's a awful lot about current conservatism that lacks empathy, and that gets to be a problem when we're trying to build a society where people respect each other and interact with each other. You've got to have some feeling about um, other people, just as you don't care when the hand that comes out of the boat and pulls you out of the flood, you don't care what color that hand is. You don't do that because you're scared, number one. And number two, the person reaching for you is not doesn't care what color you are either because that person is feeling the empathy of the situation. Here is a fellow living thing that is suffering or in trouble, and I'm in a position to help, so I must. You do the right thing because it's the right thing to do.
We're talking with, uh, excuse me, uh, Professor Gary Earl Ross uh, with us right now on Buffalo What's Next. We're going to take a a short break. We'll be back with more. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Support for the WBFO Mental Health Initiative is provided by the Patrick P. Lee Foundation, a private family foundation focused on two key investment areas, mental health and education. The Lee Foundation is committed to supporting a community that is well-informed about mental health, inclusive of individuals with mental illness, and served by high-quality, accessible mental health services. Learn more at lee.foundation. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. There are several ways for you to join the conversation. Send us a message now on Twitter, at WBFO. Email us at news at WBFO.org or just press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app and leave a comment we can use on the air. We're here for you. This is Buffalo What's Next. My name is uh, Jay Moran with Gary Earl Ross uh, this morning uh, for another 10 minutes or so here on Buffalo What's Next. Uh, Interested about the origins of your writing from uh, uh, this standpoint. Was it a desire just to write, or did you feel like you had something to say? Um... Long story short, my mother was a great reader and took her children to the library um, somewhat regularly. One Saturday when I was 10, it was a Saturday in April, um, and it was a rainy Saturday, I do recall that. We went to the library, picked up books, and got home. One of the new books that had just come out then was Ray Bradbury's Ours for Rocket, a short story collection. I spent the next couple of days reading that book, and I decided I wanted to tell stories. Now, I don't know that I had anything to say at that at 10, but I, I loved Bradbury's language, and um, I really got into reading. I mean, I had been a reader from the time I was three, but that was the, the trigger that put me into avid, passionate reading. And um, so when I decided to write, um, I thought about, you know, I, part of it was I wanted to tell cool stories. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because, and then, you know, and I was old enough at that point to sit up and watch Twilight Zone and Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and they had wonderfully clever stories, um, many of which I've taught and used the videos in classes over the years. But um, I wanted to tell cool stories, and I started reading books on how to write, and, um, and I started trying to sell my stories at 13. I sold my first story at 18. Wow. And didn't sell my second story until I was 27 and done with graduate school, but that's a whole other, whole other thing. We all have our lean periods. Yes. <laughs> but I, I've, I've sold consistently since then. And um, I slowly developed a sense of having things to say because there were things. So that did that come out of the writing process? Yes. Then it, 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 because I think sometimes what's lost is an important message, and it is the idea that you know we we read something, it's there, it, it comes to us, but there is a process 
the writing process is a thinking process as well. It's very much that. And at 10, I couldn't think my way out of a paper bag. Um, but later in high school, um, I had I was blessed at Bennett to have wonderful English teachers, and, and uh, including Elizabeth Nuschel, who uh, taught AP English, and um, and I was in her AP English class. Um, she once came to a talk. She'd long before she passed away, and she was quite old at that point. And she came to a talk I was giving on uh, classic murder cases one day, a uh, public talk, and I was thrilled to see her. She said, "I just wanted to see." how you were. <laughs> um, but I learned to think, to give meaning to the stories that I wanted to create. And um, the more I read, the more I thought. And for most of my life, from my teen years on, uh, I put away probably 100 books a year, about two books a week. And um, then that slowed down in retirement. I'm probably at 70 books a year at this point because I'm writing more. Um, I was going to ask that then. How much how much writing do you daily? You write daily. I try to write every day. I I do a f- I usually work about three or four hours a day at this point. You know, as I'm older, I've had I've slowed down some. I've had some health issues, but I I try to put in about three or four hours a day. Now, right now, I'm not writing writing because my three or four hours are going into um, the next audio book. The fourth Gideon Rhymes novel, Nickel City Naked Lady, came out in May. And my publisher, um, after we talked on the phone, she said, I'd like to do audiobooks. And I said, well, I used to do radio commentary for WBFO and, and so forth. She said, well, you have a good voice. You can yes, you do. So I, I do audiobooks. So that's taking my time right now. But I have only eight chapters left to do in that book. And then I'm going to move on to my next writing project. <laughs> okay. Hey, and speaking of which, we talked about this before we went on the air. And I don't want to forget this, but, you know, the, the, uh, the Nickel City series. Mm-hmm. You're up to four of them, and Gideon Rhymes is the... Is the the hero of the of the of the books, um, Nickel City Storm Warning, uh, very prophetic. Is that the word we want to use? Uh, came out in twenty twenty one. Yes, um, I the third book in the series. I and originally I had planned to make it the fourth book in the series, but politics after the second book, Nickel City Crossfire, came out. The political situation was getting so dire. I thought I should move it up. And Nickel City Storm Warning um, is about a white supremacist attack at a diversity convention in Buffalo. And it was completed in 20, 2019. Um, the book was completed. And um, it didn't come out till 2021. I, I changed publishers along the way. That's a whole other story. Um, but my new publisher needed rights to the first two books, so I got that. I had to get those back. But um, so Storm Warning came out in 2021. I didn't want to wait because I thought the way things are going, uh, particularly after the uh, the Unite the Right rally that uh, was a Chancellorville that, that saw, oh, the, my, yeah. mm-hmm. saw the, this woman run over by a car and so forth. I thought, we're going to have some other incident, and let's address some of that now. So I started doing the research on on the roots and causes of white supremacy, and I put together Storm Warning. And there are parts of Storm Warning that a friend of mine, I shared some parts with him, he posted a couple pieces on Facebook, and people were horrified and reacting. And I had to get on Facebook and explain those are not my words. They are words 
um, derived from or inspired by uh, a website, a white supremacy website, or the N-word joke page, or some other things. And you spent time, considerable oh, time on these God. pages. Yeah, if you ever if you, if you ever want to feel like you want to justify your shower, <laughs> go to a, web, a white supremacist website, read for twenty minutes, and the shower will be a relief. Mm. It's just it's it's horrifying. But um, so, the, and I thought I don't want to wait too long because this book needs to needs to come out, and um, and it did in twenty twenty one. The reviews were pretty good and and so forth. And then, lo and behold, there's a white supremacist attack in Buffalo, and I felt really eerie about that. It wasn't the way I had predicted it. There wasn't a, a particular group. Uh, this white supremacist group was called Liberty Storm. They were the chief villains of that book, and my detective was was part of a team that was trying to protect the keynote speaker at the conference, which is how he got involved. Um, I... Gideon Rhymes is, as a character is based in part on my son David, who uh, who did three combat tours in Iraq and then went on to be a police officer. He's now retired from the police, and um, he uh, works as uh, deputy director of security for a major defense contractor. I won't embarrass him by saying which one. <laughs> and um, but he's partly the inspiration for that because Gideon Rhymes is an Iraq War vet. And I was trying to think of, and he's got a little of David in him, he's got a little of me in him. Um, and I was trying to think of a name for this character I wanted to create. And every name I came up with, I Googled it and somebody had that name. When I finally came up with the name Gideon Rhymes, I Googled it, nobody had that name. I thought, that's it. That's my guy. <laughs> so we're going to go with that. So um, so he becomes um, an active part of the Nickel City. Uh, the narration is first person for these novels. And he, uh, he goes different places in Buffalo and, and has a strong sense of justice. The, you know, and I, I love the, the PI genre for that, that kind of thing. You can create a character um, who isn't flawless. Um, he's not an anti-hero in the sense that he does awful things, but he's an observer. He observes an awful lot, and um, his observations count. But those novels aren't as political as they could be. I mean, um, I play Matter of Intent deals with the failure of the uh, insanity defense for um, for defendants of color, and there are a couple twists in that. My play, The Mark of Cain, um, is based on a 1925 case where a black doctor in Detroit bought a home in a white neighborhood, and the house was attacked the second night the family was in. Somebody inside fired a gun, somebody outside died, and everybody in the house was charged with first-degree murder, and Clarence Darrow became their lawyer. Um, I play the trial of Trayvon Martin, um, flips the script and kills George Zimmerman and puts Trayvon Martin on trial. How did he, how did he fare? As good as George Zimmerman? Uh, no. <laughs> Somebody said to me, but there's there's no real surprise that the criminal justice system would treat him differently. I said, right, that's no surprise. And the question for you to ask is, why do you automatically assume that the criminal justice system will treat him differently? Because if you if you make that assumption, it comes from something. We have we imprint so many expectations and images and other things based on language, um, imagery and film. And I'll say one thing about imagery and film. Sometimes it's overt. I don't know nothing about birthing no babies. You look at Gone with the Wind or 
Mantan Moorland in one of the Charlie Chan movies. He's the chauffeur Birmingham Brown. Feats don't fail me now. Or even in the animated world. Well, I'd be done seeing about everything if I see an elephant fly. Mm. And all those images had, they, they sit in the backs of our brains for one thing or another. And, um, and so my plays are more often um, issue-oriented than my books, my novels. But the novels have micro-aggressions sometimes. For example, in Nickel City Blues, the first book, uh, a cop refers to uh, Gideon Rhymes as Shaft at one point. And he thinks, really? <laughs> because that's the, you know, you, the thing you see it in a lot, and you've seen it in cop shows or movies or what have you. Hey, Slick, my name is not Slick. Because I'm black doesn't mean you get to call me Slick and think that it means something. <laughs> so. uh, Gary Earl Ross, our time is, uh, is coming to an end here. I just want to make sure, though, um, when it comes to uh, getting a hold of your books, where can uh, folks go? Um... It's my my new publisher. Um, it spends a lot of time marketing online. Bookstores can get them; it's harder, but um, it's um, it's easier to to go to the publisher's website, Seg S E G Publishing, um, or to hit Amazon, and I'm I'm uh, or just. Everything I have is on Amazon. If you if you look at Amazon and you want to find another way to get it, you can you can do that. Very good. Uh, well, it's, uh, I think we're going to give our we had a lot of readers in this audience. I think they're going to be let's see if they can get you your pace of 100 books a year. Uh, Gary Earl Ross, <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much for joining us uh, well, today. Thank you Buff- very much for having me. This is Buffalo. What's next? Watch the WNED PBS original production, Frederick Law Olmsted, Designing America. What his parks are all about is finding immensely practical solutions to the problem of building a dream in the middle of a city. Frederick Law Olmsted Designing America, now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. This is Dave Debo. Thanks for being with us. Professor Ibram X. Kendi is here. He's a nationally known name in the field of studying how to combat racism. He's the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist and a new book, How to Raise an Anti-Racist. He's a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient. He's the director and founder of Boston University's Center for Anti-Racist Research. And quite frankly, really, he is a leader in this entire field, an expert on the concept of anti-racism. And we'll get into what that is in just a moment. Dr. Kendi, thanks for being here. Of course. Thank you for having me. Let's start with some terms. I know a lot of your work has focused on this idea. In fact, you're probably the person that sort of came up with the concept, anti-racism. That's different from just not carrying torches or or thinking I'm colorblind. Talk about the actual concept of anti-racism, if you can. Well, I think, you know, scholars and activists and advocates and intellectuals have been using the the term anti-racism or or even anti-racist for decades. And and what we've meant by that has, has been to create a structure 
of policies and practices that are leading to equity between racial groups and they're substantiated by ideas of racial equality and so differing racial groups have the same and people think they should have the same because people view them as you know as equals which of course is in contrast to many of our communities that are experiencing racism which is a series of policies and practices that are leading to racial inequity between racial groups and people are substantiating those inequities by ideas of racial hierarchy. In other words, certain groups have less because they are less. Because of things like implicit bias, though, I'm thinking that it's not enough for me as a white person to say, oh, I'm not racist. Oh, I have black friends. The concept of anti-racism, to my mind, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, really takes on a certain level of activity. Uh, the expression I've seen in other interviews was passivity equals complicity. You're looking for people to strive not to be racist and then take it the next step to the policy level? Well, in, in, indeed, because when you have a status quo of inequality, when you have a status quo of, of widespread racial disparities and you do nothing, what happens to that status quo? It persists those who are instituting the policies to maintain that status quo. They want the rest of us to do nothing. People want us to do nothing as they make it harder for certain people to vote. Uh, and just as people wanted uh, people in Buffalo and Boston where I lived to do nothing during the era of slavery because that would ensure its permanence. So that's why I'm asking for people to be actively anti-racist because that's the only way to undo racism. Does that actively mean not just battling racist policies, but just confronting it on the, the level of a microaggression? Uh, I, I'm getting my oil changed. I roll my window down. The mechanic starts talking to me while they're doing the, the work. Uh, and he says something about the shootings that happened here in Buffalo. And he uses a phrase like, oh, those people just don't. If we're talking about anti-racism, am I obligated to stop him right there and give him a correction? I don't think anyone necessarily is is obligated. However, in that moment, I think y y if you recognize that what someone said is wrong, you know, I, I think it's 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 a duty, it's a moral duty for us to to let that person know. Particularly because, how would that person know that? They're, that that what they're saying is wrong, or a person will think twice. Hopefully, the next time they, you know, they offend or degrade a particular racial group. So certainly, these interpersonal things that are happening in our lives, we should be speaking up. But more important to that, certainly, is is figuring out ways for us to change the policies that are really impacting whole communities. And how do we do that? It, it sounds like, and forgive me, I, I don't want to oversimplify, but it sounds as if you're talking in a lot of ways about an attitudinal shift and I think dismantling some of the systemic stuff, the uh, segregation on Buffalo's east side, the disinvestment on Buffalo's east side. Those things, to my mind, take more than just an attitudinal shift because of the word systemic embedded right in it, that would require some sort of change in the system. It, it would. At the same time, I, I don't want us to think it's just 
impossible to do because the disinvestment, the segregation, uh, the police violence, these are the result of policy choices or the refusal to make certain policy choices or the refusal to institute protective uh, policies. And so really, just as if you have an individual who harms another individual, we would investigate to figure out, okay, who harmed that individual, when and why. So too, when it comes to larger conditions in a community, we can investigate what policies and practices led to these conditions. Who has the power to change those policies? How can we go about uh, then uh, influencing that person or basically replacing that person to get those policies changed? How does that intersect with the politics of a city like Buffalo, where we have had an African-American mayor for 16 years, where policies may not be overtly racist and where most people would say, oh, I am not a racist? Granted, granted, the shooting, ha- shooting happened, and we can talk about that. But if we're talking policy change in a city that is already governed by an African-American mayor and a city council that is mostly African-American— can we say that they just haven't adopted enough change to the systemic things? Well, I, I don't think we should assume that because you have a particular, because you have a black person in a position of power, that that black person is going to support anti-racist policies. You know, black people are a highly diverse group of people, just as white people and Latinx people and Asian people are, and there are many different perspectives on what the problem is and and what the solution is. And so the question for any policymaker, no matter their race, is what is the effect of the policies that they're supporting? Are they having an equitable or an equitable or an inequitable effect? And I think that's why I'm supportive of getting policymakers, no matter their racial background, that are committed to anti-racist policies that are going to improve Black communities and and Latinx communities and and white communities and really all our communities in positions of power. I apologize for any stereotype I I might have made there earlier. I, I understand your point. I'm also thinking that the kind of systemic change you're talking about would require a different workflow. I, I think of Congress and how a couple of years ago they passed bills that said if you're spending more money, you have to tack on the end of the bill an analysis of where that money is going to come from. Are, are you suggesting that we need to have a way of analyzing whether every policy is in fact anti-racist? So I actually think that's something we consider. I mean, I think you, your premise of the question, which is that when we have a when we typically institute a new policy, there is even oftentimes at the local level an assessment of the economic impact of that policy. You know, why can't we have a similar assessment about the racial impact of that policy? Is it inequitable? Is it going to lead to more equity, you know, in the community? I mean, and because they're just as they're scholars and experts in Buffalo who can make an economic assessment about a new policy, so too are there scholars and, and intellectuals and, and activists and, and people uh, in the community that can make an assessment as to whether a policy is going to hurt them or harm them. And But the problem, though, is when it comes to race and racism, those of us who, who have expertise based on our lived experience or uh, based on 
training and coming to understand racism through through formal training, we are dismissed. Our expertise is dismissed. And apparently, you know, it's just imagined that that they're just different people with different opinions. And when in, when in fact there is a such thing as expertise, and and we should certainly use it when it comes to this specific topic, because how are we ever going to eliminate racism if we're ignoring the experts on it? And by experts, you mean those who have had lived experience, no? Well, that's part of it. You, you've had certainly people who have had lived experiences, and, and they can tell you, uh, based on their lived experience, what, 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 what a particular policy or set of policies are going to have done to their communities or to them, just as you have people who have studied racism at a structural level uh, over the course of their career, you know, in the academy or, or even in the community, who can also, who also has that form of expertise. How much of all of this, and I know my, much of your writing, including your most recent book, uh, delves into the field of education. How much of all of this kind of reform that you're talking about needs to be more than just the political sphere, but also at the very grassroots level in how we educate our children? I mean, I just recently came out with a book called How to Raise an Anti-Racist, which most of the book was, was talking about the ways in which we need an educational system that systematically teaches children that the racial groups are equals, as opposed to our current educational system, which too often does not uh, talk about racism as being the cause of racial disparities that our young people can see. So they're trying to figure out why, you know, Black people are disproportionately poor in their city, why Black people are more likely to be incarcerated or killed by the police, and no one is willing to talk to them about racism in schools oftentimes. And so the only other explanation is there must be something wrong with Black people or, you know, white people have more because they are more. And then too often in our schools, literally white people are more in the curriculum. So it's sort of reinforcing for kids of all racial backgrounds, this idea that white people are more by us not talking about racism and by us not ensuring that we have an extremely diverse multicultural educational set of offerings. Does that mean embracing black history more than just in one month a year? Yes. <laughs> That means in, in, in teaching Black history. That means, you know, teaching Black women's history. That means teaching uh, the history of poor people. That means teaching Asian American and Latinx American and uh, Native American history. That means teaching the history of all the different groups who make up this country. Is it more than that? Um, Darth Vader is evil. He's the Black. Luke Skywalker is white. He's the white. The cowboy in the white hat, the cowboy in the black hat. Is there a cultural component? Would would just adding Black history and more relevant curriculum be enough? Doesn't there need to be kind of a, a cultural shift as well? Well, the way you teach Black history matters, because if you, if you teach a Black history where Black people have historically been these people who were victimized, and at each point in history, they were saved by white people, you're actually teaching racist ideas, even though you're teaching black history, and you're not actually teaching an accurate history because you're not teaching 
this long storied history of, of, of black people, again, from, from Buffalo to Boston, engaging in resistance you know, to, to, to racism. So certainly how you teach it. And then we just have to acknowledge that there are multiple cultures in this society and we have to teach those different cultures and teach respect for those different cultures so that our kids can not only be racially literate, but they can be culturally literate. And, and, and through having both forms of literacy, they can be able to interact and operate within a multiracial, multicultural society and world. Ibram Kendi is with us. He's the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist. More recently, How to Raise an Anti-Racist. He is the founder and the director of the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University. Tell me a little bit more about why this has not happened sooner. Um, I think of George Floyd, and we have had several guests on this program previously that said that was a concrete example. That was something that was in everybody's living room on their TV. You couldn't turn away and not see Derek Chauvin's knee on his neck. After such a visceral moment like that, why do we have a shooting like we did here at the Tops in Buffalo? Is society not ready for the kind of change, even though they see the violence that brings it right into their house? So I think we can narrate precisely what happened in the summer of 2020, which then can explain how we can go from the murder of George Floyd just to the to the recent tragedy and mass murder, you know, in in, in Buffalo. And that is within a week or two of uh, George Floyd's murder, you had people demonstrating, demonstrating against racism and police violence. And in response or reaction to their demonstrations, you had people from the president of the United States on down at the time saying the problem was not the police violence that is so systemic. The problem isn't white supremacy. The problem isn't racism. The problem are those demonstrators. <laughs> and as the summer went on and more demonstrations uh, took hold all over the country, uh, we, as, as people, primarily saw the demonstrations that turned violent, which then allowed uh, these very, the president and others to say, that's the actual problem. Even though by the end of the summer, one study found that I think 96% of demonstrations were peaceful. But so people started thinking, oh, the problem are those, quote, violent demonstrators. The problem is anti-racism. And the problem that then connected to this old idea that the problem is diversity, the problem is multiculturalism, the problem is people of color. And then that idea is a white supremacist talking point. That then causes people to think that, the, that, that white people are under attack and that white people are being replaced. And, and so that, of course, white replacement theory was one of the theories lurking in the mind of the person who, who, who came to, to, to Buffalo. And, it was, and, and so we're living in this moment in which we have so many powerful people with megaphones saying the problem are those people who are challenging racism or even those people of color, which then inflames white supremacist terror. And uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's Ted Cruz holding your book up on the floor of the Senate and, and denouncing it and the things in it. Am I right? Exactly. So not the problem is that you, you, you have children as 
young as three years old, uh, thinking that dark people are ugly. No, that's not the problem. The problem are those of us who are writing books for young people so they know that dark and light are both beautiful. <laughs> and then they say that we're harming children. So anybody who cares about white children or black children are then going to go after the people who they're being told are harming them. That then leads again to this white supremacist violence. In your book, you talk a lot about the two souls of the United States, the idea that there is a, a soul of justice and a soul of injustice. Is that these two forces against each other right there in the description you had? Yes, and I think this is the historic clash, you know, in this country. You know, we have certainly had people who were champions of, of slavery, champions of poverty, champions of patriarchy and homophobia and uh, all sorts of, you know, violence. And then you've had other people who have engaged in resistance against slavery and, 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 and different forms of bigotry and poverty and structural violence and, and, and white supremacist, you know, terror. And we've been fighting and battling since the origins of this country. Is it a winnable battle for either side? I think so. And, and I think there have been certain moments in American history where we thought that the side of justice was, you know, at, at the point in which it could then reconstruct this country based around ideas of, of equality and justice and freedom. And certainly that moment was after the Civil War. That moment was during the Civil Rights Movement. But unfortunately, in both cases, you've had this withering backlash, you know, from the forces of injustice. And the phrase liberty and justice for all has problems for you. Talk a little bit about liberty and how you define it. Well, I actually define freedom and, and liberty as, 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 as coming after power. So I think in order to truly be free, you have to have the power to choose to make choices. And, 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 and so that power then allows you to, to choose your own life course, you know, as opposed to a situation in which other people are choosing your life course for you. And I think certainly, you know, women and, and black people and, 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 and other groups of people have been fighting for the ability to be free through gaining power, again, since the origins of this country. What advice would you have to Buffalo, both at large and specifically the community where this uh, shooting occurred? My suspicion is that there are many people in the community of, of Buffalo who are experts on the history and the presence of, of racist policies and practices. And it's likely that those people have been calling attention to those policies and practices for years. And it's and when is the community writ large going to start listening to them and making moves on those policies and practices to create a more equitable and just, you know, Buffalo? Back in 1990, there was such a study conducted by the University of Buffalo uh, looking at all the obstacles in terms of segregation and medium income and poverty and unemployment. And um, they just recently, in the past two years, updated it 
And the title of the update report was The Harder We Run, the idea that even though it had been some 35 years later, progress had not been achieved. Is Buffalo unique? I think that in certain ways, Buffalo is unique in the sense that the levels of segregation, the lack of resources for 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 the black community in particular particularly the the the, the impoverished black community the, the the those levels are are from my understanding higher than they are in other cities across this country so so th- there is that uniqueness but then there's obviously similarities that the disparities and inequities and injustices that that buffalo is facing Others, other, other cities of, of comparable size, you know, in metro regions are facing too. Cancer nurses always say that they enjoy their job despite the struggles. Do you have optimism? Are you a hopeful guy? I'm hopeful largely because I don't believe that I can put in the effort and the energy that it takes to 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 build, you know, a, a nation that's going to be better for almost every single one of us um, if if I didn't believe that that anti-racist society, you know, was possible. If I didn't believe we could create a society where we're distributing resources based on need as opposed to based on who already has the most. If I didn't believe we, we couldn't create a society where we truly have equal opportunity, th- then it would be hard for me to, to put in the work <laughs> You know, to make that happen, and so I, I'm hopeful that that, that 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 society is 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 one that that we can create. How long have you been involved in this field, and over that time, has you seen enough progress to engender that sort of hope? I I feel like I've been in in this field really ever since I decided to major in African American studies as a a junior, you know, in, in college, which was about 20 years ago, and I, I though am trying not to gain or lose hope based on what I'm seeing or not seeing. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to ensure my hope remains constant and remains philosophical that we just can't bring about change if we don't believe it's possible. So I, I don't, again, I don't want to be the one putting words in your mouth. It sounds as if you are saying you still have hope despite a lack of progress. Yes, and and the the other reason is because my enslaved ancestors still had hope that slavery would one day no longer exist in this country. And so if they could maintain hope despite the brutality of slavery, despite it lasting for 250 years or so in this country, then I feel like we can maintain hope today and continue to resist racism and try to create a new nation just as my my ancestors did. Dr. Kendi, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. That's Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, the founder and director of Boston University's Center for Anti-Racist Research and known nationally, I think, for the best-selling book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. A reminder, you can listen to this on the podcast or on demand at WBFO.org. If you want to hear this guest again or even Jay Moran's earlier guest, Gary Earl Ross. In the meantime, we will continue this discussion tomorrow on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, 
WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.